You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Fredrik Skanse, CEO at Fondle.io. We have these elephants when they roll over in a different direction, like 20 startups die. <laughs> you gotta be really careful. Welcome to this very first episode of the SaaS Nordic podcast. And we're your hosts, Thomas Schöberg. And Daniel Nakowski. And we want you to join our journey and exploring the wealth of Nordic SaaS companies. And Daniel, why are we doing this? It's a good question, Thomas. And we're really here because we wanted to still our own interest and understand what is it that makes Nordic companies so successful, not in the Nordics, but globally. What's the secret sauce from the best founders out there, the ones with the best track record, the best companies out there. And it was really a way for you and I to pick their brains and to learn what works, what doesn't work, in a way to bring that back into our own functions and our own professional lives and, and apply those sets of rules, so to say. Okay, yeah, and so just you can understand a little bit where we come from and, and also our angle in all of this is to to look at the SaaS industry from an inside perspective. We have both worked within this for, for several years, but maybe you can go into your background a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been in, in uh, tech and SaaS sales for my entire career. Uh, today, I am the VP of sales uh, of a Swedish company uh, called InRiver, headquartered in Malmö, but we really have a global presence. Uh, we're selling something called PIM Solutions, Product Information Management. Uh, previously, I've been working both in the IoT space and also in uh, selling document management and translation management solutions. Um, really, I've had the privilege to to work my entire career for uh, startups and scale-ups and hyper-growth companies. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work bo- both in the Nordics, in Germany, and spent really 10 years in the US with the previous company. So, moved businesses from Europe to the US, had the opportunity to do the same journey back uh, and really that's that's my career and and really exciting to hear how other people have done this journey growing from really small to several hundred millions of ARR. How about you Thomas? Well I'm working as the director of strategic alliances at Aptus Technologies. We're doing radically smarter merchandising for e-commerce solutions with AI technology Uh, I got into the internet business in the mid-90s while I was studying being an engineer in media technology. I then, through the dot-com era, joined internet companies working with uh, content management solutions. I've been into web-to-print, geographical IT and map solutions. And uh, the last five, six years, we have worked together within product information management. So... Uh, also worked on companies of different sizes and also being part of a hypergrowth uh, journey. So uh, it's really interesting. And um, we want to take you on this journey together with us and, um, and also, you know, learn both from mistakes and, and uh, things that are, are proven to work. And uh, you will meet everything from CEOs to uh, to marketing people, product people, investors, and other people that are engaged in the, the SaaS industry. And 
We are very happy today to have a great first guest. It's uh, Fredrik Skanse, the CEO of Funnel.io. They were appointed the hottest SaaS B2B startup in Europe this summer. And uh, maybe, Daniel, you could tell us a little bit about what we can expect in this episode. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I think uh, Frederick is uh, a really exciting person. He, his background and story is, is super impressive. And uh, today, particularly, we're going to talk to him about the pivot journey that they've done at Funnel. The funnel we know today is not the funnel we knew a few years ago. And, and it's really been a, a, an amazing transformational journey. And we're going to pick his brain a little bit on, on how you go about on a journey like this. What are the challenges ahead of you? What are the pitfalls? What are the, some of the things you need to think about? So I'm really excited and look forward to this. Great. So without further ado, buckle up and we are introducing for you Fredrik Skanse at Funnel.io. So welcome, Fredrik. Great to have you here, Fredrik. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. How did your journey start? How did you enter the world of SaaS? Yeah, so... Um I so I'm Swedish and from Sweden. I, I spent about twelve years in the US. Studied in the US. Um, worked um, five years in enterprise software um, in in Silicon Valley, but traditional uh, enterprise software. Um, and then then went back to Europe. Started an e-commerce company in the UK. Did that for seven years, um, but then decided to come back to Sweden. Um, and and that's sort of where I. Um, Got got involved in in uh, coming back to technology and and software. Um, met my co-founder Per Mader there uh, in Sweden, who was working at a media company that that was doing some interesting technology, um, and we um, uh, basically um, based on that uh, spun out a company that that eventually became Funnel. Exciting. So. Did you start uh, your journey from the technology side? So are you a technologist or are you a commercial guy from the beginning? What did you actually study? So I'm a technologist at heart. So I, I uh, studied um, electrical engineering um, and uh, studied it, did my master's degree at MIT in, in, in the US um, and then <laughs> worked a, a number of years in, in software development, but then decided sort of, uh, gradually moved into sort of product management and decided to go back to school to get a an MBA, which I did at, at Stanford for two years, um, and, and that was uh, in in I, I came to Silicon Valley in '98 and, and did that for two years there. So it was the heydays of, of the first internet boom. So it was an amazing time to be in Silicon Valley. So did you always know that one day you're going to have your own business? Was that was that the division and the goal here? Yeah, already at that time, I really wanted to. I re, you know, actually, when going to MIT, I thought I was going to do a PhD in MIT uh, and and invent something and then commercialize it. Um, and I actually invented some stuff at MIT, um, but there was no way that that could ever be used for anything useful. And I was a bit <laughs> disillusioned by by sort of the research there that it was a bit too theoretical. Um, so I, that's partially why I said, look, I I, I need to. Um, Go and work uh, and and learn a little more about the real real world problems, and then actually also sort of you know broaden myself a little bit and and uh, and get a uh, get an MBA and, and a business background. So so that's what I did. And, and again, sort of going to uh, going to uh, to Stanford, I thought I was going to start a business right out of that. And and um, uh, but but again, thought thought uh, better to take some time and actually learn more and, and then do it. 
I must ask you, so what did you invent? Uh, what, what I invented? Yeah, so, so, you know, so this was actually, so I studied adaptive systems, so sort of around uh, the idea of uh, so closely connected to artificial intelligence. Um, and um, uh, and uh, basically, uh, we, we were trying to solve, um, uh, so, solve problems uh, using neural networks to train them to solve, solve some theoretical problems. Uh, and it, but it was quite hard to prove. That you could solve the problems with with a neural network, and and it was really computationally intensive. So we were, you know, looking to MIT at the time had a supercomputer, and we were looking to hire time there to run these networks. But then actually, I managed to theoretically, uh, you know, so- solve the problem without uh, using a neural network, and that was much easier. Uh, and actually, it was just correct. <laughs> so that worked out pretty well, and we we wrote a bunch of. Uh, of international journal papers based on that, um, but but you know it, the, exactly that didn't have any really theoretical or, or or sort of industry use that I could use it for. Yeah, I, I was just about to say that. I guess th- this sounds like the foundation of an idea that would be well funded now. Yeah, I guess you were a little bit uh, before your time in that sense. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. Um, I, I actually so so the, my my idea then going into business school was that I was you know the the, the problem with AI was that it was actually. Um, you know, it didn't really have any real applications. Most of it was sort of toys in like, um, yeah, in, in university labs. So, so I actually, my, my idea in business school was that I was going to start a toy company and use AI concepts uh, to, to do that. And, and so in business school in the summer, um, you, you go and do an internship. I actually, everybody, you know, went to internet companies in Silicon Valley. I, I went to um, LA uh, to do an internship at Mattel, which is the world's largest toy company to learn the toy industry uh, so that I could build a toy company. Um, so I did that uh, and it was really exciting. Worked in the high tech group there for the summer with a bunch of really senior people all, all out of MIT. And, and did a collaborative project with MIT Media Lab. Um, but then, you know, I came back to Stanford and the, MIT, uh, and the internet was happening and it, it, it was just time to join. <laughs> it's going to change the world. Yeah, it sounds like an exciting time at least. <laughs> yeah, it's going to change the world. And yeah, at the time it was uh, wireless internet was, was hot. So, so I, I, I joined a startup but originally called phone.com that became OpenWave, which was sort of the fir- first player in the WAP, WAP standard and was really large there. So I did, did that and it was enterprise software for five years. Okay. And now you're the CEO um, of Funnel.io, a successful, fast-growing SaaS company. So Funnel.io, what problem do you solve? Yeah, so the problem with Funnel, so so I, you know, after Silicon Valley, I went to, to London, uh, started an e-commerce company there. <clears throat> so I, and I spent a lot of time working on marketing, e-commerce marketing is really important, digital marketing, online marketing is really important for for. Um, for um, uh, e-commerce companies, and my, my co-founder had had been part of a journey for start a, a media company uh, in Stockholm, and um, so he worked really a lot with with online and digital marketing. And what we had realized was that advertisers really had a lot of systems and tools available to them to make ads and and sort of optimize ads. But when it came to asking that sort of taking a step back and sort of looking at the bigger picture and saying, how is it going? What's what's the P&L, the profit and loss statement for my advertising? Everybody was using a spreadsheet. Um, and uh, and they were sort of exporting data from all these advertising and marketing sources and all the, all these analytic sources, and they were doing it once per market. And if they were in ten markets, like there were people hating their lives, um, <laughs> and and they didn't know what was going on. And and it, you know they certainly weren't optimizing their marketing. And we said, look, 
Yeah. There's got to be a way to, to automate this. And that's what we set out to do. And that's, that's really funnel. And we originally thought that we were going to do this for SME market. Uh, we, we sort of, before that, we sort of dabbled with, with, with building a, uh, a Facebook advertising tool that ended up being quite successful, did about $100 million worth of uh, advertising for, for, um, through Facebook. Um, and so we had quite a lot of background in it. And we thought, you know, that, that was targeted as an SME market. And we thought, let's, Let's uh, actually do this for the SME market. Um, and the larger companies, they probably are going to have solved this with, with BI systems. So we'll focus on that. Um, turned out that wasn't quite the case. The SME market um, uh, wasn't quite ready for that sophisticated reporting. But but luckily for us, the, the larger companies hadn't solved it. They had great BI tools, but the marketing teams couldn't use them because they couldn't get the data into them and it was too hard to use them. So they were sitting in spreadsheets as well. Uh, and that turned out to be our market. Yeah. And I see a lot of parallels to what we have done in the PIM business, product information management. It's also, you know, data from all kinds of sources that you want to centralize and uh, when you look at companies, you think that the larger companies have control of that, but I mean, they use spreadsheets even more than the smaller companies. So I see a lot of parallels there. And, and that's, you know, when, when we saw a funnel for the first time and sort of your diagrams of what you're doing, I mean, we, I think we could relate <laughs> directly of the value that you bring. I think it's really interesting. I mean, if when we think about the vision that we have, it's really about empowering the line of business. And in our case, it's empowering the line of business with data. There is so much focus on centralizing processes with engineering and IT and large companies, um, but it really creates such a bur such an obstacle for these line of business units to be agile and fast and iterate. They have to order stuff from IT. It's late. You know, they're not very service oriented, and so on. But but you know, we, we as a company, we're super agile. We adopt those principles, and and that seems to be a big trend. You know that, that that's very successful. But it's very very hard if you're in an enterprise to do that when when you're not empowered to actually do things yourself. Yeah, and I find that very interesting. As as you saw your customers evolving, the market evolving, your business evolved. The funnel we know today is not the same funnel. If we go back a few years, back in time, you went through quite of a transformational piece is my understanding can you talk a little bit about that how do you go from having one vision one one set of product to transforming the business to be slightly different potentially having another type of product potentially selling it differently to maybe even a different target group yeah yeah so so basically we absolutely started with with something very different from the beginning um and and i think it's it's interesting i think it's uh i think it's really important to you know to to listen to your customers and your thoughts and and and, and actually be adaptive and change but it's very hard it's very hard when you um have investors and you have a plan and you're sort of locked into what you've promised um and it and it's it's really hard to make changes um and i think that's something in this company that we have done well um we we've we've taken the we've done the hard choices and we've we've done them sort of um uh, 
when, when we were certain that there was something else that was better to do, we sort of have had a dialogue with everybody and said, "Look, we need to change this. We need to do this instead." And and then you know, and then we've 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 done it. And so a couple of we have actually have a couple of examples of that. Um, so, but the biggest one was was sort of early in the company. So we actually started um, building a different product uh, and uh, then funnel. Um, so for our first product was a Facebook advertising tool. It's called Quaya. Still, still exists. Um, and um, it it basically um, was uh, an advertising tool for Facebook. We were very very early, very early partner with Facebook. Um, and um, uh, you know, we we sort of bet it was when when nobody was advertising or very few people were advertising on Facebook. But we saw the parallels to Google. We had a lot of experience with Google technology and and, um, and Google Ads tools. And we said we think Facebook's going to figure this ads business out. They're going to be a really good big channel. Um, and so there there are a lot of ad tools helping people on Google. We're going to build one with Facebook, and we're going to do one thing different. Um, we feel there's going to be a lot of enterprise tools. Um, but there are no good advertising tools for the SME market. There's nothing that you can pay $100 for and just sign up and get started with. It all costs kind of several thousand dollars. You pay a percentage of ad spend and so on. So that's what we wanted to do. That was our vision. And we built that. Uh, we got access to the Facebook advertising API as one of the first uh, companies. Facebook wasn't super interested in us. They wanted large companies, but they said, fine, look, you know, you, you do this and then we'll talk in two years. Wow. Um, so we went on with it. And as we said, we, we actually got a lot of traction. We signed a lot of customers. Um, and then we ended up doing, uh, after a couple of years, 1% of Facebook, uh, Facebook's revenues, we did about $100 million. Uh, and they, they, they woke up and said, look, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, there's, you know, you're the only partner we have in the SME segment. It's sort of half of our revenue. Uh, let's talk. But we had sort of started to think about what we, what we really wanted to do. And, and we had always thought that over time, we wanted to add more platforms. You know, we maybe added support for Twitter and LinkedIn and build a social advertising tool. Um, and, and that would be, that was our vision. That's where other enterprise companies did and, and sort of as a quite nice little category and, and you had a little more sort of power to your company because you, you controlled a couple of channels. But we spoke to our customers. They weren't interested in that at all. Facebook was really large. And at the time, Twitter and LinkedIn were very small. Some were using it, some weren't. They, they, they wanted us to just build more Facebook tools uh, or Facebook features. Um, but, but at the same time, Facebook was building these tools themselves. So it wasn't super interesting. We were struggling. What should we do? And we spent a lot of time talking to our customers. And then basically what came out was what we talked about before. They had the, the real problem that they had that they nobody solved for them was the reporting problem. How's it going? You know, how, how are all my channels doing? We said that is a much bigger, more interesting problem to solve. Um, but it's also very different from what we do today. So if we're going to do this, it's going to be a different product. We're going to have to sort of start from 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 the beginning uh, and then we ended up doing that uh, and so that was really a hard pivot you know from one product to another and, and it was a product that already had product market fit you know had a, over a million dollars in in ARR um, and had funding so so that was uh, so that was pretty hard uh, but we did it um, we thought it would take us about a year to sort of just get on, get on with it and, and build a dashboard that replaced Excel for these marketers but uh, it actually ended up being uh, taking more, more like two years. Turns out everybody's spreadsheets a bit different. Um, but uh, yeah, 
clearly you guys know knew what you were doing we've seen the success now and and you were convinced about the vision and that you guys had to make this transformation but also must ask you it's 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 quite a brave and bold move how do you convince your investors they've initially invested and supported a slightly different idea how do you go about that and then i'd also like to ask you a little bit what are the mechanics in making this type of a transformation internally for an organization Yes, it's good. It's a great question. Yeah, so so it, it is a really hard discussion to have, um, and, and and I think my observation is you have to have a lot of self confidence and 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 you have to have credibility with your investors. Um, I you know this is the second company I founded, um, and I, I think I I. I, I sort of observed the journey before and, and I knew how important it was to strategically be in the right place. Otherwise, the journey is not going to end up. So, so I was quite adamant that we got to do this. Uh, and then we had to have the discussion. And, um, and it, it, was not an, it was not an easy discussion and it was not happy investors. <laughs> um, uh, absolutely. But it, but it was also, in the end, supportive investors. You know, we were lucky. We had two, two great uh, companies that were VC firms that invested in Funnel or, or in, in, our, in our first product, which was um, Industry Fund and, and, and um, VC firm from um, Skåne called um, Subito. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, in the end were supportive of this and they helped fund us through this process because actually ended up also taking a bit longer to get to product market fit with our new product. And we needed more funding to do that. And they helped support the company through that process. Also brought in some more, uh, uh, angel investors in their network to help support the company. Um, and, and that's really what made it possible to do this. So uh, it was, it was a collaboration with our investors, uh, and, and you have to have supportive investors to be able to do this. Super interesting. Uh, what did it mean for you guys internally to make this transformation? Did it affect how you guys, uh, developed your product? Did it affect how you went about sales? How did you manage the existing teams? Was the existing team still a good fit, considering you're changing scope and direction a little bit? How did you tackle that? And how long did it take to make this transformation? Yeah, so it's a great question. Yeah, so that's a really hard problem. Um, so th the good thing is that the team we had was a really good fit. So it was, we were in SaaS and we were moving to SaaS. Well, it turned out we, 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 the go-to-market model needed to change. Um, but we didn't have, uh, because we had a sort of totally product-led sales in our original um, product, we didn't have that. So it was more about building it. But the, the team that we had was a fit. But, but basically what we said was, look, if we're going to do this, we can't sort of put one or two people on it and do a small project. It, we got we to gotta, we gotta jump in and we got to put everybody on it and put one or two people on the old product. And so, and that's actually what we did. Once we made a decision, we moved essentially everybody in the tech team, we had maybe a tech team of like 12, 13 people, moved everybody except one or two people over to the new product. And we started, we, so we went fully in all in, because um, you, you're funded, you have a certain amount of, you have a, you, you have a certain amount of money, you have a certain amount of a runway, and we knew we needed to get as far as possible with the new story. Um, because you can't raise money with two pro two very different products in a company. It, it's basically you you got to sort of go all in, and that, and that's what we did. And then it's about driving change uh, in the business, and um, 
and and getting everybody uh, you know excited about this and aligned about this and and focused around it and 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 that's what we did we spent a lot of time doing that we 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 were very clear we explained kind of where we were what the logic was that this was a much bigger opportunity and then you know we we went and we started working now you know if you, if you look at funnel now one one of the things that that I'm really proud of is we build a strong culture and and we're you know we have a lot of happy and uh, uh, employees we have about 150 employees and we maybe maybe lose one or two employees per year so we have almost no turnover but but at that time at that time when we did this transition we did we did over time have some more turnover so even though we didn't think so there were uh, there were a couple of people who just thought oh maybe the company isn't doing so well uh and and sort of ended up over time leaving the company so so it is absolutely destabilizing and and you have to you have to sort of work through it um the vast majority stayed with the company and stayed with the journey but a few didn't uh, and and i in in retrospect uh, reflecting on it I, I think that that was because it was a little unsettling i think for people that it was a really big change and we <laughs> we went all in we kind of did a quick move you know a lot of a lot of companies are going through these types of changes. Markets are changing. You're forced into a pivot, or, or maybe you realize that you need to take your products in a different direction. One thing when I talk to people, when I and Thomas talk to people, we realize that people often underestimate the time it takes to make this change. How long time did it take you guys to from the commitment to fully have left the path, so to say? Yeah. So I I, I think you're absolutely right that it takes time, but we did it very quickly. Like we did it in in a matter of like a couple of months. Um, so so we made that change quickly. Um, now that having been said, we then thought that you know how hard is it? Like we you know it's hard to start a SaaS. It's hard to reach one million in ARR. But we've already done it. It's in the same space. How hard is it going to be to reach a million again? Um, we said it's going to just take a year. Well, it turned out it took a whole year to build something without any revenue. And then when we launched it. It took another year to get to some meaningful revenue. It still wasn't one million in ARR <laughs> because it needed a different sales motion. Different, you know, we actually needed to be sold. It, it was a bit too complex to be self-service, and so we had to figure that out. We had to find the right go-to-market model. Everything is a little bit different. So it actually took us. It probably took us three years to go to, go to where the old product was. But but it was always very clear that the it was a much bigger vision much bigger opportunity much bigger need in the customer so we went we never doubted that it was you know the right thing to do and 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 in retrospect it was a, it was the right decision you know by, by order of magnitude so everybody is super pleased that we did this and and it and it turned out really well but uh but it was it's really tough when things take longer and, and you have a certain amount of funding <laughs> SAS Nordic is growing, and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager, and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate, and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com. We can't wait to have you on board. So what I think is interesting is actually that you didn't go for sort of the broader scope with your previous offering where you added on other social networks and so on. And looking at that sort of um, business now, there is it's quite crowded with different companies doing that, but you chose a narrower niche instead with a reporting in focus. And uh, I mean, that's, that's brave, uh, that's bold, but... Um, 
I mean, you managed to find this positioning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we were really early to look at the market and say, yeah, it's growing. There's there's opportunity here, but the positioning isn't great. You know, uh, one, you've got a lot of companies building exactly the same technology stack, and then you've got these really large elephants, basically like the Googles and the Facebooks. Um, and they're building this themselves, and it, and 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 these this category is really close to them. And you know, basically, you know, when you have these, <laughs> we have these elephants when they roll over in a different direction, like twenty startups die. <laughs> you got to be really careful. So you kind of want to, you kind of, you know, you kind of want to get the pull from these, you know, these big markets that they're creating. But you want to be distancing yourself a bit from what they do, so you do something that's unique that they that that's not in the, their path, so to say. And when we looked at this, the, the reporting space. We saw a lot of white space, you know, we saw a lot of customer demand and, and that wasn't fulfilled. And we said, this is much better. It's much more fun to build something that nobody else is building, a bit, bit more groundbreaking. And that's what we ended up doing. Yeah, I think that's a great advice. And I've also been in that situation at the previous company where we had a sort of a, a map engine for the web. And it wasn't that fun when Google Maps came out and it was free for everyone. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. It's, it, it is really hard to compete with a really large internet giant when they have free products. Yeah. So in, in hindsight, it's, it's a great idea that you guys made this change. Um, and I think a lot of people in the Nordics at least uh, have seen your impressive growth, your expansion. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go to market with your offering? And is there a difference between the regions? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, um, we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, uh, working on finding a good go-to-market model. And I, I think that every company ha and every founding team has to found their own go-to-market team and it's a com or go-to-market strategy. And it's a combination of... Uh, basically what fits the product and the market and what fits the team. Um, and, and as I said, our previous, our first company, we, you know, we, it was a complete self-service um, uh, free trial model where no touch, where, where we didn't speak to the customers. We, we actually tried that with this, with this product and it, and it didn't work. It was too complex. Um, and then we, we tried outbound um, and, and it, it worked in, um, in, uh, well in sweden but it was actually quite hard to scale uh into europe into for example the uk because we were selling it to e-commerce directors and they were quite hard to reach uh so we we sort of took a step back and built a hybrid model where where our lead generation is basically um done through online marketing um but it generates leads and signups where people actually sign up to speak to to sales and and then basically so we have we have we have we, sort of traditional way of organizing or traditional modern way of organizing a sales um, a SaaS sales uh, and go to market organization which is there's lead gen separated from basically sales and and lead gen generates leads for sales um, and and that's sort of where we ended up and our and our our sales process is purely 100% inside sales and has always been um, and with that, then we, we kind of view Europe as one region, um, and we, we don't distinguish so much between the, 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 the countries. Uh, and we initially just focused on Europe. Um, but then we got leads from the US, um, and we started sort of working with those. But it's quite hard to get the team to, 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 to sort of take these meetings at, at night. And we said, look, it's time to, to put our foot down in, in the US and, and open an office there. 
And that was back at the end of 2016. So my co-founder moved over um, and we, we settled on Boston as, as a place to be. And, um, and he moved over with his family to Boston for a year to set up that office. Um, and, and that was quite successful. We, we then sort of mo- we basically mirrored a model in Europe there and, 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 and built a team, um, a sales team and, and a account management and customer success team in the US. I mean, you're mentioning lead generation, and uh, I basically see you every day on LinkedIn. But uh, what are the best channels for you when it comes to lead generation? Um, so it's it's all the traditional online channels, anything from Google and LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, and uh, and then a broad set of 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 sort of smaller channels. Um, you 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 the, really the key is. And each channel requires experimentation and and sort of figuring out how how it operates. But but really, the the key with online marketing uh, is to uh, to to you know find as many channels as possible. Uh, a lot of the big ones are auctions based. So 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 the more you spend, the, the more expensive it gets. Uh, so you could sort of cap out on them, and then you gotta, gotta just find more and more of these channels. Um, is Twitter actually good today? Yeah, I think Twitter. If you've got the right strategy, uh, then then it works, um, and and many other works. But but you gotta you gotta figure out the right strategy. You gotta have uh, really smart people uh, who do you know who who know how to operate it, and and then it works. Yeah, you must tailor your message for each channel and understand how how you work and how you find the right crowd. Yeah, find the right targeting and and uh, right messaging, and it's a combination of organic work and content, and then and then actual sort of paid and so on. I want to come back a little bit uh, to what you said about your your expansion in from the Nordics into the UK, and particularly because in my role today and previously, it's always been a challenge. How do you grow uh, from being best in the Nordics into being best in in Europe and then best in in the US? Uh, a lot of Nordics companies, what I've seen is a natural idea if you're in the Martech or the ecom business is you either go to UK or Benelux. Or both of them at the same time, because language is not a barrier. Was that also how you decided to expand outside of the Nordics, or did you go for the entire continent right off the bat? Yeah, we no, we did a little bit of what you said. Uh, we experimented also with the UK uh, to sort of. Um, we we felt like it's quite a competitive market, but we also felt like we have a really differentiated product, uh, so it should be doable. Um, but and, and and we had a differentiated product. It was just hard to get hold of the people that needed to understand that we had a differentiated product, uh, and so it was became a bit cost prohibitive. And then we found a better way with online marketing, and then and we, then we sort of took a step back from it. So we 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 sort of built a little bit of a presence in the UK uh, as an experiment, and then dismantled that. So so normally, basically in in the US, um, you, you, in, in SaaS, you talk about sort of these two or three different stages that a company goes through. Right. The first one is to find product market fit. And then once you have product market fit, then you have to find a good go-to-market model. So where, where you actually can figure out a way to get customers in a scalable way. And then the third thing is then to scale. <laughs> but in, but actually for, for Nordic companies, it is so much easier to sell in the Nordics because it's such a small market. It's a, you know difficult language for others and so on. So so basically it's kind of like you, you've got a one more stage. You 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 find product market fit, you find a way to sell in the Nordics. <laughs> then once you've found a way to sell in the Nordics, you got to figure out if that works, 
in Europe and in the US. And then you got to figure that out and then you can scale because <laughs> you can't scale in the Nordics unless you're like Fort Knox. You know, they, they <laughs> seem to be able to find a big enough market to scale in the, in the Nordics. But, but other than that, you got to get for, for SaaS, you got to get outside of the Nordics if, if you're going to build scale. That's absolutely right. And, and I think an interesting challenge related to that is when we scale outside of the Nordics, uh, to what extent do we commit to the local markets? with people in that local market? Did you guys decide to put a bunch of people in the UK to start with? And uh, did you expand on that? Or do you run this centrally where most of your people are in, in, in Stockholm? Yeah, we, we, so we did an experiment with UK and we put one person there uh, and it was a senior person from the UK. Um, but, but as I said, it was, it was hard. It was, it didn't work. That, that direct sales model at that time in the company didn't work. So then we pulled back from it. And now, so we, now we just run, run all of Europe from Stockholm. Um, and, and that works for us. Uh, but, but over time, I, I would f- foresee as we get, we, we, we are moving up market in terms of, you know, larger and larger companies are, are signing up, including, you know, now some really large companies who run all their sort of marketing through us. So, you know, over, over time, we will, we, we will have field sales in, in the big sort of regions. Um, absolutely. But, but we're not there yet. And, and we're, probably not going to be there next year either uh, it's, it's probably after that yeah and also one thing that i mean relates to this when you say that you're moving up and working with bigger companies is that the professional services part also i guess expands and you mentioned before that this is not the service that sort of uh, it's not a no touch solution from your side you, you actually help customers to onboard uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that is, is that something that is sort of included in the subscription or do you charge for that and uh, yeah do you have any challenges in that area so we tried automatic onboarding and it sort of worked but we found that the conversion rate of people managing to get themselves onboarded was low and the ones who managed to get themselves onboarded didn't quite always understand everything so so there was a higher churn. And so we decided quite early that to put product, so to put everybody through basically a, a product specialist that helped them get set up and it in, increased conversions and it, um, it increased conversions and it, uh, it, it also greatly reduced churn. So, so that, and, and I think that more and more companies have learned that, that, that it's kind of worth it to do that in, in many cases. Um, and um, so, so we've kind of built on that. So everybody goes through that, not just if you're going to buy our product, you, you go through that process, uh, even if you're small. So we, and then we built it out. So now we've learned that with larger companies, you know, that maybe there's slightly different skill set in terms of onboarding them. And it's a bit more complex and you run a bigger project. But, but, it, but it's the same motion that we have and that we have a product specialist that onboards everybody. Okay, but is that sometimes a part of the offering, and sometimes sort of something that goes beyond that, or what does that look like? The onboarding for a trial and then the setup and the training is always included in the product. We don't charge separately. We have we have zero revenue for professional services. Okay, uh, and are you doing all of this uh, onboarding yourselves, or do you work with external partners as well? Uh, traditionally, we have done it all ourselves. Um, and uh, in some instances, we have we have partners, but but partner channel is not big for us. It 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 would be nice, but 
but it it when it partner channel it's more for us kind of uh, you know sort of other tech companies relate in in related areas you know it could be so we have a partnership with snowflake uh where you know it's a big very modern data warehouse with a lot of momentum so it, in, and then when they want to enable the uh, the marketing use case then funnel is a good uh, source of data to put in there and um, uh, we have partnership with looker uh, it was a visualization tool so when when customers want to visualize their marketing data we're a good big partner to get that data in there so but so it's more partnership like that but they don't it's not professional services types of sort of consulting companies doing partnerships okay i see and I mean, you guys have been growing at an impressive rate the past few years, and you recently were awarded the hottest SaaS B2B startup in Europe. That must be really amazing. Yeah, it's great. And I think more than anything else, it's great for the team. The team has worked super hard for many, many years. And, and uh, you know, you put your head down and you sort of <laughs> just grind through and then every now and then. Uh, to get a, to get a recognition like that, you know, I think I, pe- I think pe- people in the company are feeling really good about it and and uh, and feel like wow, okay, yeah, I, I, we are really are doing something here that's world class, and that's I, I think that's been that's been great. Yeah, it's not everybody that gets the the Europa Award. I think there's some some well known names that have uh, or companies that have received that award before. Spotify is, is one of them. Uh, would you be willing to share with with us and our listeners some of the growth numbers? Can you talk a little bit about how your ARR has been growing over the past couple of years? Uh, talk a little bit about how your company and team has been growing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, we've been on a we have been on a very grow- fast growth path. So you know, we we've tripled revenue, and then you know, two point five x revenue, and then it's been and then la- last year we grew one hundred seven percent. Wow. And that was actually the hardest year. Like that, 2019, we 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 grew we grew revenue 107. percent We also doubled headcount, so we went from 70 to 140 people. And before then, you know, the the growth was actually growth rate was even faster. But you know, when you're 35, if you go from 20 to 35 people, or from 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 15 to 35 people, it it it's very manageable. It's like you, you still have everybody in one office, and and uh, you actually we didn't even have an office manager. It, it's it's quite straightforward. You've got a you've got a strong leadership team. You know, it's not that many people each to manage, and 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 so on. So it works really well. You keep the culture together. But when you go from 70 to 140, and you know, you 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 you. Um, get into an office that can hold maybe 250 people. I mean, the processes are actually quite different. It, it, everything is very large and complex, and you need to put the next level of process in place. Uh, and so that was a that was a big year, and there were a lot of new people that needed to be onboarded to keep the culture, and and that's really stretched us uh, a lot. Yeah, and how do you sort of maintain the culture in the company? Who owns that, and and also how do you avoid being too process heavy? Yeah, so that's uh, that's a great question, uh, or two great questions. So, it, so in terms ultimately, in terms of in our company, who owns the culture? Ultimately, I see myself as being responsible for that. I, I, that's not something I would ever delegate to anybody else. And actually, I see it as maybe my most important role, um, and it's something I spend a lot of time on. I probably spend twenty five percent of my time on culture, and and that really is so. That's literally. If it's a forty-hour week, it's ten hours. <laughs> you know, ten hours uh, uh, to 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 work on culture. So I spend a lot of time on it. 
Uh, and I find myself spending more time on it now than last year and more time on it last year than the year before. It becomes more and more important uh, because I can't be involved in every decision. And, you know, and, and, and so you got to put the culture in, and, I, and you can't sort of spend time with every interaction. It's got, you got to create a culture where, where, where you let go and the, the, but you feel you have the structure in place. But then that having been said, our leadership is also, you know, super accountable to culture. They probably also spend a really large proportion of their time, probably also on the order of 25% on culture. Um, so, you know, so it trickles down. It, 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 uh, and, and so I'm, I, and I def definitely am not alone in it. No, and what do you actually what do you do with these ten hours a week? What what are sort of the the concrete examples of things that you do to sort of maintain this culture that is so important for you? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, first of all, you got to decide on what what you want your culture to be, and I don't think there's a right answer there. Uh, it, you know, everybody, and and again, it got it's got to kind of fit with your with with your with your founding team and the team you have and and kind of where you want to go and what you want to build um you know we we we've decided to have a culture with a lot of inspiration from you know agile servant leadership and and sort of create an empowered culture uh pushed on authority as far down in the organization as we can um and and also if, if there's one thing that we focus on more than anything else is teamwork, like really getting people to, it's much more important what we achieve as a team and we don't want any individual superstars or rock stars or, and we, and a team is not a superstar with a supporting cast. The team is a set of strong individuals working together. So that, so we work really hard on that and we spend a tremendous amount of time continuously looking at the organization and, and seeing you know, where if we find that there are issues or friction, or if it's unclear, if I, if a new manager comes in and it's unclear to them how to be a good manager at funnel, well, then we got to write it down and we got to say, look, here, here is, you know, as a manager, we don't want you to be a Uber project manager that knows everything. What we want is we want to create an empowered team that basically can operate almost without you, but you are a coach. You help. You find bottlenecks. You 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 empower them. You 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 make them. You know. You you coach them where the where it's needed, um, and so on. And you and you asked another good question, which is okay. How do you involve? How do you avoid? You know, too much too much process in the in the company. And again, so we talk a lot about it. You know, we have team meetings every well, we have team meetings every week, but we also have longer team meetings every month with the entire company. Um, and uh, and uh, and then we talk a lot about okay. You know, process is fundamentally good, but you only want process where it's really helpful and helps people. And when you develop processes, they're going to be, they should be lightweight, they should be easy to maintain. And then we observe. If we see that there are processes or committees and hard to make decisions, then we say, okay, look, uh, this is not agile. This is not sort of iterate. This is like taking forever to make decisions. Let's think differently here. Let's just sort of do this. And and so yeah, you just got to keep working it. That's a great piece of advice for for everybody that's that's in uh, a hyper growth phase. You got to make sure the rest of the team, the rest of the people, are on that journey. And I fully agree with you that having a solid culture, maintaining that culture, helps you really be successful and on that journey. Um, 
I wanted to ask you, what other piece of advice would you have for uh, first-time founders, uh, founders and leaders in early-stage startups that are just about to embark on their hyper-growth journey? They have one million in ARR. They're starting to expand outside of the Nordics. If you could just in a couple of sentences say like, this is some of the things I've learned on this journey. Have that with you when you start your journey now. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I mean, I, I think um, if, if you are at one million in ARR, I think you've sort of hit product market fit, and I think that is a fundamental fundamental um, sort of milestone. Um, I think if I if I were to say, what would I do if I were earlier than that? If I if I was sort of um, if I was even pre product market fit, I would say realize that it's going to take a lot of time. And don't rush it. Don't sort of, you know, don't don't sort of bypass the finding product market fit and try to sort of just focus on sales and and, and get too many customers in. But take that extra time, which is hard, to to sort of get to the product market fit right. When when you then get to the one million in ARR, then I think you got to start thinking about, okay, how can I now, I, I have product market fit, I need to continue to building product and investing in that, but now how can I build out that, that commercial organization? And, and I think it, it's the same, I think, advice. Don't rush it. It's so easy to think, oh, there are four competitors, we got to win, how big are they? Uh, let's just keep rushing, rushing, rushing. Um, but I think it's one of our culture values is built for the long term. Um, and um, you know, I, I think take that time and, 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 and it's really hard to manage with the board and, and investors and big ambitions and stuff. But and I think I, I don't think investors are helping here. I think they're too they're too pushing too hard. Uh, they're too ambitious. To, and, and also, uh, I think in the spirit of being agile, you know, you got to you get new information all the time. and You got to be willing to change and so on. And, and doing these one year plans that you always do and maybe even have a two year plan. At, at 1 million in ARR, it, it, to be honest, doesn't make sense because in three months in, things are going to be different and you probably need to do something different. And you've got to have that conversation and, and, and be agile and, and sort of do what's right, not what it said in the plan. Yeah. Thank you, Frederick. I mean, that's great advice. And it has been really great having you on the show. Uh, it's really interesting to listen to you. And uh, I would like to end with... Asking you, who would you like to see us interviewing here? Have you have you got any tips for someone that we should uh, try to get on the show? Yeah, absolutely. So I would I would recommend speaking to. Um, you've always spoken to one of our board members, Hordakas. I, you know, we our our chairman, Mikael Jonsson. I would recommend uh, speaking to. Uh, Mikael has been involved in our company. Uh, from the start, um, and during that journey, he has founded um, a VC company called Ox, um, which is a growth stage, uh, focusing on growth growth stage SaaS uh, investments, and he's focused on the Nordic. So this is this is basically what he does for a living. He's very knowledgeable about SaaS, and I, I'd really um, recommend uh, talking to him. That's great advice, Frederick, and we'd love to have uh, Mikael on the show. Thanks again for, for joining us. It was super interesting. Thanks, guys. Very much enjoyed being on the, on the show. Thanks. Bye. Wow, that was really an amazing story. And, uh, and I mean, his background, having had those 
fantastic years in the US, going to MIT and Stanford, and then taking the, a little bit unusual path, going to Mattel, being in Barbie land for a while, exploring that, and then going into sort of the internet business. Uh, really inspiring to hear. Right, I think it's, a, it's really exciting because you know he got to go to all these amazing schools with the biggest brains in the world, and he got to play with Barbies. Like, yeah. pretty fantastic five years there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And also, I mean, having had these product journeys, and, and first, I mean, when you get the success, when he talked about this first company, Quaya, and how they were the most successful Facebook advertising platform for the SME segment, and then decide to do something else. I mean, that's really brave. You have a success already. It must be so tempting to just continue on that. And then, as he said, it, it didn't take one year, it took two years, even three years before they were in the place that they were before when it came to ARR and so on. And, and, and also get the investors to believe in that. It, as he said, it requires a big set of confidence if you're going to do it. And that's really one of the things I take away from this. You got to be courageous. So he's a fantastic CEO. He's proven to his board and to his team that he knows what he's doing. But really, it takes a lot of guts to go back to your investors, your board, your existing team to say like, look, we have something good going on here, but this is not the future for us. And in their case, it was because uh, some of the, the big players like Facebook, Google, and all these guys, they were making some inroads here. But he had the ability to see into the future that at some point they're gonna kill his business. And he had the courage enough to say, you know what, we got to do something else. And it's really, that's one of the first steps that I see. Don't ignore the risks ahead of you. Sometimes I think us as, as leaders, we see a potential problem and you got to act upon it quickly. And I think that was really impressive uh, how he dared to take a successful model, a successful product yeah, and really say, you know what, we're not doing this. No. We're committing our entire organization, all the funds, into something else. Absolutely. So when you decide, then you go all in. So I mean, they shifted their whole technology department. Everyone was working on the new solution. And even if it took those years before they sort of came up to speed, uh, right? I mean, it was totally worth it. And I think it's really inspiring. And another thing that he talked about that I also think is really important is the, the bit about culture. And, and I also like that he himself as the CEO saw himself as the owner of the culture. And that also then sort of drilled down to the managers and, and enabled you to, even if you can't be a part of the everyday decisions all the time, you can make sure that through that culture, you're taking the company in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of companies talk about how strong their culture is, how they have a living and active culture. But I think really, like you say, Thomas here, uh, what was interesting for me to hear is how much time he actually spent on working on the culture. Yeah, you gotta live the culture. Yeah, you, you gotta live the culture. And uh, I think he said that him as a CEO is spending 20% of his time that's one day a week, mm. full time, mm. on culture. And the closest leaders next to him probably spend as much time. And I think that shows a commitment to how important the culture is. And that's really the best way to get a living and an active culture. 
Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to learn more about the podcast, you can go to sasnordic.com. You can email us at contact at sasnordic.com. If you have any suggestions about guest topics, or maybe you want to be on the show, there might be an opportunity there. You can also message us on social media. We are on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever. It's Sas Nordic. You can find us if you search for that handle. And uh, also, uh, why not go to iTunes and give us a good review? We appreciate that. And we will be back every second week. So expect a lot of good content uh, going forward. And from me and Daniel, we say see you again and uh, have a nice day.